Yes, well, good morning to everybody. Welcome to everybody who is joining us on site here and those who are online with us yet again this week. We uh, are glad that you're here as we are concluding our walk through the book or the letter of Paul to the uh, first letter to the people, the believers, the church that lived in Thessalonica. And if you're with us last week, you'll know that we ended chapter 4 where Paul is sort of making a reference to some end-time events that were rather exciting for, for the church at that time, even for the, for the church today. And today as we kind of pick up where we left off, he continues this thought about some of these end-time events, but he builds upon it by introducing a principle that I think is really important. It's a principle that basically can be stated this way. A person's view or a person's outlook on a particular event or a particular place or a particular person. A a person's view or their outlook towards something has a strong impact upon how they live. Now, if you think about this, you'll see that it's it's widely applicable to all areas of life, and and there's a lot of truth behind this principle. You see, um, one person's view towards something will impact how they live towards it. Think of, for example, if you were invited to go for dinner with somebody. Well, based upon the invitation you received, based upon the guest list that you received, based upon the location, whether it's at a restaurant downtown or if it's at McDonald's and they ask you to bring coupons, will determine how you approach that event, right? You'll decide, should I put on a sport coat or can I leave on my gray sweatpants? Before I go up. By the way, we had a discussion about this at staff meeting this past week, and all of the ladies on staff unanimously agreed that nobody should be allowed to wear gray sweatpants out in public. So, uh, even if you're going to McDonald's, maybe consider getting changed. But how you view that dinner will affect how you approach it and how you plan going towards it. You know, one area that I've seen this actually played out, uh, this principle played out regularly, is when uh, Nadine and I are doing marriage preparation for couples. And, and over the years that I've been a pastor, we've, we've worked with probably you know, 50 people in doing marriage preparation. And one of the first things that we talk about when we get together to start this process of marriage preparation, one of the first things we talk about is what's referred to as mindset. And mindset speaks to what is the general attitude? What is the general outlook that these people as individuals have as they head towards this institution of marriage? And based upon the mindset that they have, it will determine and give me insight into what are they feeling? Uh, What sort of preparation steps are they involved in? Are they taking? How involved in preparation are they? You know, what sort of ways do they talk about marriage? What, what sort of things are they looking forward to or not looking forward to based upon mindset? And I'll give you a couple examples. These aren't all the mindsets by any means. But for example, there's the marriage mindset of a person who has this kind of resolute perspective. And basically, if you have a resolute mindset towards marriage, you see it as lifers. It is forever. Come hell or high water, no matter how miserable we get, <laughs> there's no divorce. Resolute mindset. You can see how that view would affect how you live. There's, uh, on the other end, there's the, the romantic mindset where, where people are like, I'm looking for my soulmate. Like somebody who's going to, like Prince Charming is going to sweep me off my feet because I've dreamt of that since I was three. And that's what it's going to be like. And love is never going to fade. And love is never going to get hard. We're always going to be in love. We're always going to hold hands. We're always going to cuddle. And then they're married for a couple years, Right? And like, well, love becomes a bit of a choice along the way, a little bit too. So there's this romantic mindset. And then there's another one we run into sometimes, not too often, thankfully, is the restless mindset. 
And this is where people are not really ready to get married, but they're doing it anyways. And quite often when they come into my office and they're like, well, we want to do the marriage prep, but can we do it kind of quick? Like, can we do it in the next couple of weeks? I'm like, you're in a restless mindset. What's going on? It's like, well, we want the dress to fit in a couple of weeks. So there's different motivating factors that take place in this restless kind of mindset. But, you know, there's, there's others that I can have time to go through here today. But the point is, everybody has a mindset towards marriage, and you will fall into one of these, and it will impact how you enter into that institution, how you live in the midst of a married life, how you, how you view that institution leading up to your wedding day and every day thereafter. Now, we're going to talk more about marriage in a lot more detail starting next week. Because next week, we're actually going to start a four-week series on marriage. So we're really looking forward to that. I, I promise you right now that there is something in this marriage series for everybody. Whether you are single, if you are newlywed, if you are a veteran of being married, if you are in that camp of expecting a ring by spring, there is something here for everybody. So plan to attend plan to invite somebody to come along. Uh, make sure you show up as a couple, if at all possible. We are going to have some fun. I am going to push some buttons for you, and we're going to unpack God's plan for marriage starting next week. But today, I want to focus primarily, specifically, upon this principle, that one's outlook towards something impacts how they live. Now, remember last week, as I mentioned, that Paul ends chapter 4 by talking about the rapture. This event that will take place where Jesus calls all of those who had faithfully lived for him, those who had lived faithfully for him as his followers, he will take them, whether they're alive or if they've fallen asleep, he will take them from earth to be with him in eternity. Now for some people, this was a great and a blessed day, sometimes in scripture referred to as the day of Christ, as the day of Jesus. This great and blessed day when people, well, we actually will see Jesus face to face and we'll be with him through all of eternity. That was chapter four. But for other people, it's not a blessed day. You see, for other people, it's actually a dreadful day. And when we talk about the dreadful aspect of that day, that's what the Bible refers to sometimes as the day of the Lord. You see, for those who are, who are taken away to be with Jesus, it's a blessed day. But there are those who are left behind. And for them, it's actually a dreadful day. Because the day of the Lord is a day that has been prophesied throughout the Bible as a day when God will pour out his wrath upon the ungodly. And we find as we enter into the final chapter of 1 Thessalonians, we find as we enter into this that Paul draws our attention to these differing views of this event. And if you want to follow along in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you can find it in your pew Bible on page 958, or it's on the sermon notes if you want to scan the pew portal there. And as you're flipping to that, Paul draws our attention to these different views of this particular event. You see, the Thessalonians knew the promises that Jesus had made. They knew that the end-time events would begin with the rapture. And based upon what they knew and thought about that, affected how they lived. For some people, it caused them to live with incredible joy and excitement, anticipation of that day. But for others, it actually was leading to some confusion. And that confusion actually was leading to a degree of apathy in how they lived for Christ as well. And so as Paul ends his letter to those who live in Thessalonica, he clarifies what it means to faithfully live today with the hope of eternity in sight. And he does so by talking about this glorious and dreadful day 
from two perspectives. And we begin to see this in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 5, where Paul says to them, Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and the dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The day of the Lord referred to here is not so much a day as much as a period of time. A period of time that will begin at the rapture and continue through what's referred to as the tribulation. And there are those who are left behind from the rapture who will endure this time of tribulation. And as Paul describes, it will be sudden, an unwelcome, and an unavoidable event. Like a thief making a visit to you in the night. Have you ever had your home broken into at night? Or you had your vehicle vandalized or broken into at night? If you're on one of these Facebook community pages, you probably see posts about this fairly regularly. It's, it's a common thing that happens. And when you read the posts about people who have their garages or, their, or their, their homes or their vehicles broken into, quite often the comments that they'll make will be along the lines of surprise mixed with anger will be what you find in them. You know, a number of years ago, I had my truck broken into. It was before I was a pastor, and I had some business stuff in the cab of my truck, and I had a, a briefcase with some work documents on it. And, you know, and they could have just opened the briefcase, but they decided to take a knife to it, and they just kind of cut the top open. There's nothing of value in there. They just destroyed it. They took the change out of my kind of little change compartment. They just made a general mess of my whole truck. And the, the only thing of real value that, that we lost was a CD case. This is back in, in the 90s, back when you had sort of one in the dash and a six CD changer in the back, right? You're Gen X, you know what I'm talking about, right? You get multiple discs on command all the time. It was a great day. But you had to have like a case of CDs in there because, you know, you've got to swap them out. You couldn't just ask Siri to play a certain song, right? And so I had this case of 50 CDs, and they took my CDs, now, a little side note, I actually found the CDs about a block away. Because see what happened is they took the CDs and they went a block away and they started flipping through going, well, let's see what kind of tunes we got here. And it was like all Christian CDs. <laughs> so they just left them at the side of the road. <laughs> so I got those back. But anyways, I wasn't laughing at the time because I was upset. It was unsettling that in the middle of the night, somebody would come in in this unwelcome violation of my truck. And I felt the pain and I felt the loss and the violation of it. And Paul's saying this day of tribulation, this day of the Lord will come when people are feeling safe and they're, they're feeling secure. They're thinking, my life is going great. And then suddenly a change happens. Suddenly a change happens that he describes to be like the labor pains that a, that a woman feels. Where you, you know you're pregnant and you know the day is coming, but you, you think, well, it's probably not today. Sometimes I know near the end of pregnancy you hope it's today, but, but you think, well, it's probably not today. But then all of a sudden that first pinch, that that first pain hits. And you go, nothing will be the same from this point forward. Like there's no stopping this once it begins. Everything's going to be different from that first moment. I remember when Nadine was pregnant with Samuel. And on this particular day, we'd had, you know, she was already two weeks overdue and she was getting uncomfortable, but we had a good day. And we had a nice evening and we were getting ready for bed. It was a little bit late. And all of a sudden, I heard crying from the bathroom. And I went in to see, I thought something had happened. I, what, what happened? And Nadine had felt that first pain at 11 o'clock at night. And she was crying. She said, I, I don't want to do this right now. I'm tired. And I know that I'm going to have to spend the entire night awake 
feeling this pain of the labor. And then the next day, when I'm already completely exhausted, I'm going to have to go through the delivery process. And, and sure enough, it was true. After I woke up the next morning, I, I went in and said, how was your night, honey? <laughs> I, I didn't. No. I know, I'm doing a marriage seminar next week, right? And it's going to be great. No, I didn't. I stayed with her, right? The most, most time. <laughs> but sure enough, but so she was, she was feeling the, the suddenness because nothing was going to be the same afterwards. And the tribulation period is the same way. It's sudden, it's unwelcome, it's unavoidable, and it will be a dreadful time for those who are left behind. Now, due to the persecution that the Thessalonians were facing, they thought some, some thought we'd already missed it, that maybe we missed the, maybe we missed the rapture and we're already in the tribulation. Do we do something wrong? And there were others who were of a different perspective. They thought, well, no, it hasn't happened yet. And they were looking up, thinking, any minute now, any minute now it's going to come. And they decided to check out of life. They quit their jobs and they maxed out their credit cards thinking, I'm not going to be here to pay for it anyways. So, so I'm not going to go to work and I'm going to enjoy all these credit cards. And then they climbed a mountain think I'll be the first one up in the air when the day comes. And they just kicked back and waited. And so to both of these people, Paul addresses them. And he says to the first group, you have nothing to worry about. Trust in the promises of Jesus. For it is not for you to know the times and the dates that the Father has set. But remember what Jesus also said. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when the day comes, I will come back and I will take you to be with me. And then to those that were being passive in their waiting, he says, get to work. Get to work. There is work that Jesus has given us to do right up to the very last minute. May he find us being busy for him. May he find us being light in the darkness. And that's the analogy he then turns to in verse 3. He says this in verse 3 through 7. He says, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the darkness, so that the day, this day should not surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness, so then... Let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. He uses this analogy of light and darkness here. And it presents this clear perspective on, on their view towards that these two groups had towards this day. And those who are in Christ, he calls them children of light. And he's kind of using Jesus' own words here. As Jesus said in John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. And now when you're a child of something, that means that you characterize that family, that you are part of that family. That means you have all the rights, all the access, all the privileges of a son and a daughter. It is an unbreakable bond and definition of who you are as being a child. And so when it comes to the day of the Lord, Paul's saying, you won't be surprised by it because your brother Jesus already told you what to expect. You know what to look for. You are spiritually awake. You are alert and you are watching for the things that are happening around you. You are sober-minded. You have minds that are clear to understand the events and the times. You have lives that reflect your readiness when that time comes. He says, but there are the other people. There are those who are of the night. And he speaks here of those who are of the night metaphorically by saying that they're asleep and that they're drunk. Being metaphorically asleep here, saying that they're spiritually unaware of the truth about who Jesus is. There's this lack of awareness and understanding about who Jesus is and of their need for a new life in him. Now, some people would have found themselves in this place of spiritual darkness by choice because they outright just rejected who Jesus was. But there are others who, who just didn't know 
And they just weren't given a chance to accept him. And he regards them as sleeping. They're like someone who was walking around in a drunken stupor, not aware of the eternal peril and the lost condition in which they find themselves. You know, and the distinction between these two groups, I think one way to understand the distinction between these two groups is that, is that there are those who are the children of the light, who are looking forward with hope. And then there are those who are of the darkness who are not looking at all. Does that make sense? There are those who are looking forward with hope because they're in the light. And then there's those who are in the darkness who are not looking forward at all. I came across a story this week. It turned out to be satire, but I thought it painted a picture of this distinction beautifully. So there's this guy named Bart Center who is an avowed atheist. And he started a company a couple years back. A company called Earthbound Pets. And what he decided to do is he thought, I, I, I know how I can make some fast money. For $115, one time $115 fee, he would sign a contract with you that in case of your rapture, he'll send a pet sitter by to come look after your pets. Just $115 one time fee. Clearly, you must love your dogs. You must love your dogs enough. $115. You want to be cared for if you're raptured, right? And, and it's in the fine print. He details that all contractors, all of the contracted pet sitters are sworn atheists who will not be part of the rapture and love animals. And so he thought this was his only way to cash in on the biblical promises that were there. Now, some aspect of that is humorous. Some of it is sad. But it shows the distinction, doesn't it? There is one group who's looking forward with hope and another one who's not even looking at all. But the language that Paul uses here, the subtle language he uses, it actually, it leaves the door open for a sense of hope. It really does. You see, children of light are securely, by the nature of being children, they are securely in the family of God. They have a new life in Christ. They have a new destiny in Jesus that is sealed and confirmed. But do you notice that when it talks about those who are of the night, it doesn't use the word children. Instead, it gives this idea that they may be in the darkness, but they are not of the darkness. You see, because Jesus has always promised, in John chapter 1 in particular, he promises that light will always pierce the darkness. That you may be in a moment of darkness. You may have a family member. You may have a friend who is in the darkness, but darkness is not your identity. Darkness is not your eternal destiny. Darkness is your present state. That there is a light that pierces that darkness. As Jesus said in the Gospel of John as well, put your trust in the light while there is still time, and then you will become children of light. Jesus is literally saying there is a time coming and it, that, that when, when the opportunity will not exist anymore. There is an expiration to how long you have to wait. And those who are in the darkness that allow that expiration to pass will remain in the darkness. But that time is not yet. Because Jesus is still the light that the world needs. And he calls all of his followers in this period of waiting to be a light in the midst of that darkness. So that those who are in darkness may see God's light in us and through us and place their trust in him. And move from darkness to the light. You see, as children of light, Paul calls all Christians, all followers, to be equipped for just such a purpose. 
And it's a purpose that he kind of talks about in verse 8 here. When he says this, he says to, to those who are children of light, he says, but since you belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or if we are asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, may these words be an encouragement to one another. Build each other up in these words, just as in fact you are already doing. He talks here about this breastplate of faith and love. With, in sort of military terms, the idea of a soldier would put on some armor before they go into battle. And the breastplate was a critical piece of armor. It would sort of go from kind of the waist to, to the clavicle. And it would cover all of these protective vital organs, in particular the heart. It was designed to particularly protect the heart. And so Paul's saying here, put on your breastplate of faith and put on your, your breastplate of love. Because he wants us to have our hearts pretty. He wants us to guard our hearts, to protect our hearts. And one way we can understand this is he's reminding us to guard our hearts from the lostness of the world. And we know what that's like. We know what it's like to live in the world and see sinfulness all around us. To see sinfulness increasing. And even if we are those who have a relationship with Christ, when we see this happening around us into the, into the, to the country in which we live and into the friends and the families that we care for, when we see this happening, when we see the, the lostness and the blindness continue through the rejection of the light, it is easy to become dismayed, isn't it? It is easy to allow ourselves to lose heart. So we've got to guard our hearts against the hopelessness of what we can see around us. So we've got to guard our hearts from the lostness of the world. But there's another way we can understand this as well, is that we need to guard our hearts for the lostness of the world too. For those who live in darkness. When we see those who have no relationship with Jesus. When we see those who even attack the things of Christ, who, who are even adversarial against those who have a faith. When, when we see those people, how do we respond? Sometimes, and I, you, you probably, I, I felt this sometimes in some of these situations, where I sit back and I'm like, just wait. You can get yours. I don't have to say anything. I'm not going to do anything because when that day comes, this guy is going to be proven right. You ever felt something similar to that situation? I guess it's just me. <laughs> I know we all feel these sometimes. Is that how our heart goes? Or does our heart break? Even when they're against an adversarial, even when we, they stand against us, does our heart break like Jesus' heart broke for everybody he encountered who was lost, everyone he encountered who was rejected by the world, who was injured by the religious elite, who needed the hope, the grace, and the truth of Jesus Christ? Or does our heart break like his broke for theirs? And do we therefore have a desire to share our light? You know, there's a, a video that's been going on on the internet the last little while. Maybe you've seen it from a, a guy, probably by the name you know, named uh, Penn Gillette. He, you know, is Penn of Penn & Teller. You, you probably know that name if you don't know Penn Gillette. And so he's, he's a world-class performer. Uh, if you don't know, he's actually a brilliant man. He, he's invited quite often to host like Mensa events. Absolutely brilliant. But he talks about in this video, 
who at the end of his show, he always makes time for people in the audience to come by and chat and meet with them and talk, a little meet and greet. And he tells the story. The whole reason it prompted him to make this one video in particular is that there's this one guy who waited to talk to him at the end of his show. And eventually this man walked his way up to Penn, and he said this guy was extremely kind, and he was genuine and complimentary. And after we chatted for a few minutes, very, very pleasant, very, very pleasant conversation, he then said to me, he says, I want you to have this. And he handed him a, a Gideon Bible, which he had wrote his contact information in the cover in case he wanted to follow up with him. And he, and he then shared, briefly shared the good news of Jesus Christ with him and said, I just want you to have this and I want you to know that God loves you. Now, what you may not know about Penn is that he originally was in a home where there was a Christian background. And Penn used to go to youth group when he was younger. And during his youth years, he started asking questions. He's a very, very inquisitive, very intelligent person who had questions about things. And he was asking his youth pastor and other pastors in the church questions about faith and life. And he was told to not ask questions. There's no room for questions. Just hear it, believe it, and move on. That perspective shaped how he lived his life, which is the principle we were talking about earlier. That had a huge impact on shaping how he lives his life. And that was the response. But when he talks about this guy who came talking at the end of the show, his response to this guy was, I respect you. I I respect this guy. And And the rationale behind it is this. He says that this guy knows who he is, knows that he is a a, a strict atheist, and yet he came to me politely, honestly, sanely, caring enough about me to share his faith with me and to give me a Bible. Why? Because he believes that there's a heaven and a hell, even if I don't, he says. He believes that there's a heaven and a hell, and he believes that I could go to one or to the other. And he was not going to allow a slightly socially awkward moment that would lead me to spend eternity in hell. And so he pressed forward. I thought, what a beautiful example of of an impact, a witness upon this devout atheist who says, I respect this guy. I don't agree with him, but I respect him. And this is how seeds get planted. And this guy that he's speaking of, I believe that he's an example of one who guarded his heart with a breastplate of faith because that faith gave him the courage to step forward to a person who was different than him. It gave him the courage to step into this moment of darkness and to risk an awkward situation. Why? Because he also had on the breastplate of love. A love that compelled him to share the good news of Jesus with one who did not yet have that in their life that they too may come from darkness into the light. Now, some of you, as you hear stories like this and, and testimonies of different people, it convicts you. And you think to yourself, you know, the next chance that I get at work or the next moment opportunity I have with my neighbor and my family, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to share my faith. I'm going to share the good news of Jesus with them. And I want to encourage you that if you're feeling that, I want to encourage you to press into that. And I want you to press into it because, one, it's important And we see that that's the work that Jesus has given us to do while we're waiting. But at the same time, I want you to press into it and not lose that because there's a reason Paul says we need to put on armor. We need to put on armor because you have an enemy who wants to stop you from doing that. 
He wants to keep you from doing it. And if you feel that conviction in your heart to step into an awkward situation, if you feel that conviction to share your faith with somebody else, if you feel that conviction, you probably in the very next moment also all of a sudden feel the doubt in your mind, don't you? That, that doubt or that hesitation. That's the weapon of the enemy. Doubt and fear are the enemy's greatest weapon. He will come into you when you have that moment of conviction. Go, I should share my faith. I should, I should say something. I should step forward. I, I'm, I'm going to do it this time. And then that voice that comes in that goes, you're not ready. You don't know enough. Who are you? You're not good enough to do that. Your story? Really? Your story is going to change their lives? This moment of doubt and fear. If you feel that, I want you to know that that is the prime enemy's weapon. The key weapon we're going to encounter. And I want you to know that he's partially right. He's partially right. You're not good enough. You don't know enough. You're not ready enough. But Jesus Christ is. And Jesus Christ dwells within you. And his story is good enough. And his work on the cross is enough. And your salvation, your freedom, your identity, your destiny in him, the fact that you can take the stuff of your darkness from the past and cast it aside and stand as a child of light, that story is good enough. That is good enough to go forward. And do not let the enemy tell you otherwise. Because it is not by our words. It is by the fact that we faithfully step forward and share our words that the Holy Spirit can work and do amazing things in people's lives. Amazing things. And this is why Paul says here, that, that wasn't in my notes, so I might go a little long here, but, but this is why Paul says that we need to put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. Because we need to protect the truth that exists between our ears. We need to protect what we know, what we've heard, and what we believe. We need to protect that. And what do we know? We know that God did everything needed to bring us into the light to become his children. We know that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and live and to reveal the grace, truth, and love of God. That the light has come into the darkness. And as it says in John 1, 5, darkness will never overcome that light. Jesus has come into the world to reveal God to us. As he lived, he then walked to the cross and offered himself in our place to pay the price for our sins that separate us from God. That as he took our sin upon him, he, he, he gave us his righteousness in exchange. That we might be forgiven. That we might become the righteousness of God. And so that as it says in verse 12 of John chapter 1, that all those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who believe in the Son of God, become a child of God. Not by our own works and not by our own will, but by the work and by the will of God, God the Father who makes us one of his children. This is the good news. This is the good news that is to be an encouragement to all people. So that those who live in the light can do so amidst the darkness. And it can be an encouragement to those who are in the light and those who are in the darkness. Because if you are in the light, then you can be awake and you can be sober and you can be assured of your identity in Christ. But if you are living in the darkness, you need to know that you do not belong to the darkness. You are not destined to remain in the darkness. That Jesus Christ came, for God so loved you, for God so loved the world, that he sent his one and only Son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life in the light with the Son. That is the good news of Jesus Christ for all who walk in darkness. May that stir you awake if you are in darkness. 
May that stir you awake that you will come to accept it, to believe it, and to confess it, and to become a child of light. Amen? So as we look forward to the day of being with Jesus, it gives us incredible hope. This is some of the stuff how we live in the waiting time. As we live with eternity in sight, we do so by equipping and encouraging others. We do so by sharing the good news with those who are living in darkness, that they too may come into the light, living with eternity in sight. And that's what the Thessalonians were known for. They were known for, remember Jack in chapter 1, they were known for people who had faith that works in the world, that led them to labors of love amongst those in the world, and a hope of eternity that endured through all seasons because of their hope they had in Christ. They knew the promises of God. They knew their identity was secure in Jesus Christ. But they were relatively new believers, weren't they? Remember, we talked about this. This is the church that Paul planted, and then he got chased out by persecution. But they were relatively new believers, even though they had all these wonderful foundational things taking place. And so challenges still existed within the community. And as, as, as Paul wraps up his letter, he gives these final instructions about living in community. But, so we've talked here about living with eternity inside in terms of, of knowing who we are in Christ. We've talked about knowing what that looks like as we live in the world. But there's also a degree here where he's like, so here's what it looks like within the family. Because all of us struggle with this from time to time. And, and so Paul speaks here about some specific things happening in the church of Thessalonica. But at the same time, it's things, issues that we can pay special attention to as well. Because these are just practical things that impact us, whether it's in, in home or in the office, in the school, wherever we may be. Things that can impact us. And, and he does list these things off, beginning here in, in verse 12, where he says this. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. And live in peace with each other. Uh, basically in verse 12, 13, he's, he's saying that I'm calling you to support and to respect the leaders in the church that God has placed over you. Now, uh, there, are, there are bad leaders that exist in some churches, and Paul has strong words for them in, in other passages. But, but the church in Thessalonica had good leaders. They had good, not, not perfect, but leaders of good character, of good conduct, leaders that were worthy of being encouraged and obeyed and followed. And, and I know in my years of being in church and being a pastor, I have seen the damage, the generational damage that poor church leaders can cause. They, I, I met with a guy a couple weeks ago that I haven't talked to for 10 years because the last time he and I were together, there was, there was a leadership challenge in a church that just fractured the body. 10 years between conversations, and he and I were able to reconcile and reunite. Ten years, though, they're apart. Maybe you've seen stories like this, too, the damage that bad leaders can do, but, but that wasn't the case here. And I hope you've also seen the example of what a blessing good leaders in a church can be. Not perfect, not always right, but leaders who love God, who work hard and care deeply for the, for the flock that's been put under their care. That, that's, that's who Paul's talking to here, who he's talking about here. You know, and such people are worthy of support and encouragement. They're, they're worthy of being followed and, and striving for peace and striving for unity. As we work together as a team, 
to share in and grow in the Word of God. And as we talk about this idea of a team, we, we then know that not everyone on a team is at the same point, right? Not everyone on a team needs the same things at the same way, at the same time, at the same level of maturity. And, and that's kind of what he gets to in the next verse here, where he says this in, in, uh, in verse 14. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. When we talk about this idea of team and different needs, it reminds me back when I was younger and I used to play football. And I remember during our warm-ups, you ever play football, you may have done this as well. During our warm-ups, we would warm up together, completely synchronized. We would do jumping jacks perfectly synchronized. We would do push-ups synchronized. And the leaders, the coaches at the front would call out the cadence, like up, down, up, down. And everyone would completely synchronize as a team. We would stretch as a team. We would run laps as a team. And things are pretty even until we ran laps. But then as you're running laps, you find that your receivers are pretty quick. Your linemen are pretty slow. They don't run as fast as the receivers. That's why they're linemen, right? But we ran as a team. The receivers had to pull it back. The linemen had to pick it up. We ran as a team. And so when we struggled, we struggled together. When we encouraged, we encouraged together. We started together and we finished together as a team. And so Paul's saying here in this passage, if someone's out of step, if they're making unwise or, or, or bad decisions for themselves or for the health of the church, go to them. Go to them in love. Help them see where they're heading and offer to walk with them for a while. He's saying if there's somebody in the body who's discouraged, they're having a hard time, bring comfort and community around them. If there's someone whose faith is fading, if there's somebody who's losing faith, if somebody who's new to faith, don't abandon them. Show them love and show them grace. and Show them that this is a safe place to ask questions. This is a safe place to have doubts and then come alongside them to help them understand the grace, truth, and love of Jesus Christ for them. And then in verse 15, he says this. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. In any community, in any family, if you're in that family community long enough, it's inevitable that somebody is going to wrong you or offend you. That's just, that's just human nature. It's going to happen. And when those wrongs happen, they matter. They need to be addressed, and, and we can't just sweep the damage under the rug. That, that's the wrong, unhealthy thing to do. But, but what he's saying in here is that as people who are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, our goal is to live out forgiveness. Our goal is to live a life of love. Our, our goal is to extend the same grace that Christ showed to us. And then he concludes his letter here by saying this. Says, if, if this is the outlook that a church can have, if this is what the church community can look like and be like and effectively do in the world around them, man, it, it will, if this is the view that they can have, it will so powerfully impact the way that they live. That as he says in verse 16, that we can therefore always be joyful, that we will never stop praying, that we will be thankful in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you who belong to Jesus Christ, he says. And he continues by saying, if we can do this, if we can be this, if we can live this way with this view of eternity in sight today, then we will not stifle the work of the Holy Spirit amongst us. We will not scoff at the guidance that the Holy Spirit brings to us. We'll be able to test what is said and reject what is evil and cling to what is good. Well, folks, I, I pray that will continue to be the experience we have here at West Meadows as we faithfully live with eternity in sight. And then as Paul closes his letter, and as we close our time here,
today and in this series. He ends with a prayer and a blessing for them. And it's, it's a prayer and a blessing that I would like to pray over all of you today as we close our time. And, and after, after this time of prayer, we're going to move to a song, a response song, a new song called The Hymn of Heaven. I just think so perfectly, beautifully speaks to the hope of eternity that we can and should have. And so after we pray, I'm going to invite you to, to listen and maybe reflect upon the words of that song. But hey, at the same time, jump in. I, I think you'll pick up the song quickly. Sing along and join us in singing the prayer of heaven. And so as we now move to a bit of a response and reflect upon these things, and I close with prayer, can I invite you to stand with me as I pray over us today? As I pray these final words, that's Paul, Paul spoke to his church, that I long to see realized and spoken in our lives. May our God, May the author and the perfecter of peace that exists within us and among us, may, uh, may that bring us to complete sanctification of our whole selves. Lord, may we know what it means in heart and soul and body, as well as in the stories that we live out in the world, to be completely transformed by your power. Lord, may Jesus Christ be seen in us. May he be glorified through us until he dwells with us in all of eternity. And Heavenly Father, I do not only pray this for myself, I, 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 I pray this for all of us. I pray for all of us, Lord, that all of us that kneel at the foot of the cross together, that we may see the common need of Jesus Christ that we all have, that we would be all welcomed into his presence. While we wait for that day, Lord, may we heed the guidance of his word that we've covered in this book, but throughout the scriptures that we've received. May they be instructive to us. May they correct us, and Lord, may they encourage us. And I pray, Lord, that the grace of God would be with us to, so that we could withstand any trials, that we could overcome any temptations, that we'd be led towards godliness as we await the blessed day of Jesus Christ with all the angels and the saints. May we raise a mighty praise, living faithfully today with the hope of eternity firmly in sight. Amen.